You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. What is up, Bible nerds? Steve Schramm here with another episode of the Bible Nerd Podcast. I am very excited to jam a little bit on a topic that is going to be a little out of the ordinary from the kind of thing that we normally talk about here. But it's going to tie in to an interest that my content has touched on quite a bit over the years. And what I want to talk about is this this recent appearance of a public commentator, a political commentator from The Daily Wire, Matt Walsh, on the Joe Rogan podcast. And they uh, had a chat. It was basically a two-part chat. Part one was a lot of agreement uh, between Joe and Matt dealing with the issue of transgenderism and and really focusing on Matt's documentary called What is a Woman? And then the second half of it took a turn where uh, Joe very much disagreed with Matt, of course, still respectfully and amicably, but uh, amicably, but, but Joe and Matt very much disagreed with one another on basically the definition of marriage. And if I were to summarize the a probably hour and a half portion of the show down to a very, you know, simple statement here. It would be something like this. Joe did not believe Matt was making a strong enough case for the fact that um someone marrying another person of the same sex whom they loved was harmful to either individuals or to society. So Joe was looking for Matt to really make a strong case that um, that someone's gay marriage could harm him. And Matt did not deliver on that in Joe's estimation, and yet they still agreed on uh, a lot of things, especially as it related to that first part of the conversation about the transgender debate. And what I want to do is just center in on one aspect of this, and I, this has already been done, by the way, by others. I'm sure by now uh, people like James White and you know those guys have, have really centered in on this. But I want to talk about this issue of apologetic methodology. I want to explore it uh, just a little bit. It's something that I have talked about on my blog and at other places in this podcast, but I haven't really uh, talked about it in a while. And I thought, you know, maybe it's something that we should we should cover. Now, what what is the point that I'm really getting at? Well, I, I think the central question is something like this: Should Christians appeal to the Bible when engaging with public figures or really anyone? on topics where Christians have convictions that are primarily supported by the Bible. Okay. Should the Bible, if a Christian's convictions about a certain, you know, matter are informed primarily by his religious worldview, should, should the Christian involve the Bible or religion as someone might want to put it in that discussion? And basically Joe was going there. So, so Joe was really trying to work Matt, you know, work this out of Matt. He, he really wanted Matt to just come right out and say that his convictions were based on the Bible, at which point in time, of course, Joe would say, well, I don't believe the Bible, so why are you forcing your religious convictions on me? Okay, they might say something of that nature. And so in order to avoid that, and by the way, Matt has discussed this uh, on his own show, um, and his reasoning for this is, of course, sort of the standard, you know, evidential apologetic path of, well, Joe and most of his audience do not believe the Bible. And while it is true that I have convictions about this that are based on the 
biblical worldview. Um, it's also true that sort of a, a natural case can be made. There is a case for um, heterosexual monogamy to be made even from nature and from culture that does not necessarily rely on the Bible told me so, okay? And and look, wherever you fall on the apologetic methodology spectrum, if you're listening to this, um, and we'll, we'll talk more about the specifics here in a minute, but wherever you fall on that spectrum, if you fall somewhere on that spectrum, you can relate, you know, to the fact that if, if you bring the Bible into a discussion, there are people who are just automatically going to dismiss your view. Now, that's unfortunate, but it is the reality. And so given that reality, how do we, how do we react? How do we respond? What do we do? Well, let me like sort of zoom out now, 30,000 feet, and, and talk about this. Really, what is the biblically supported method of apologetics? Okay. And I, I'll tell you, this, I'm laughing a little because my, my views are on this have differed over the years. And, and I do, just to be honest, I have a very difficult time labeling myself <laughs> in this regard. And so I'm, you know, I'm just about to give up on it, frankly. Uh, and, and, you know, again, I'm chuckling, but maybe some of my frustration with this might, might come out. Here's the thing. So, um, there is a, the big, I guess, battle. There are multiple different kinds of, of, of apologetic style, right? Basically, uh, if you're a total newbie to this, it's how do we defend the faith, right? That's what apologetics is. Apologia, give a defense, a reasoned argument, a reasoned defense, uh, for the faith. First Peter 3.15. How do we do this, right? How is it, is there a particular way? That we are supposed to do this, and there are multiple uh, different you know camps here. There are presuppositionalists, there are evidentialists, there are you know people who rely on a cumulative case, and and others. Uh, some who say classical, they would they would actually you know classical is technically different than um, than evidentialism or cumulative case, etc. Even though they are related, uh, for the purposes of this discussion, I'm just going to make the the distinction between the two broadest categories which swing to either way, which would be basically presuppositionalism, presuppositionalism excuse me, versus evidentialism. Presuppositionalism being the recognition that the details of one's belief system are, ir you know, they're inseparable, inseparable. I'm not, <laughs> not speaking very well today. They are inseparable from their larger worldview considerations, the, the presuppositions that they already have about the way the world works. The evidentialist, on the other hand, wants to say, look, everybody comes to the table with bias. Everybody comes to the table with presuppositions. Yes, but within reason, it is, you, you know, you have ability to overcome that bias and, and we can get right to the details. We can get right to the specifics without having to answer larger worldview questions. And in fact, Matt even talked about this in his follow-up uh, uh, segment that he did about this, he was like, look, I, I'd really love to be able to talk with somebody who doesn't agree with me about the issue of gay marriage without having to get into a discussion about bigger religious considerations, you know, like about, I think he even said the word worldview. He's like, I'd really love to be able to just specifically dive into the issue of gay marriage and, and, and talk about that in an intelligent, reasoned, 
way without talking about larger worldview considerations. Like, why do we have to talk about whether or not God exists if we're just trying to talk about whether two people uh, who are of the same sex should get married? And I have, I understand that, like, I empathize with what he's saying there. I, I get it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I get it. Okay. I get what he's saying there. And at the same time, and I know I'm just kind of bouncing back and forth. This is a lot more me working through something audibly that I, I've needed to kind of work through for a long time. And you just get to kind of come along for the ride with me. At the same time, uh, you know, there's an issue on the presuppositionalist side of the house too. And it's an issue. It's a tension that I have fought for a while. Um, and I think there's, there's just gotta be a better way to think about it. And I'm not, I'm not quite there yet. Uh, but the issue is this, if you ask a hardcore presuppositionalist, they will tell you that it is impossible to consistently be a presuppositionalist and not to be a Calvinist. Okay. And not to have the soteriological beliefs of, of, of basically of Calvinism, of, of Tulip, of that whole picture. Um, largely because of the fact of, of the, uh, total depravity, really the the noetic effects of sin. Okay, if if you don't have a, a a Calvinist viewpoint on issues of that nature, then they would say you could not practice presuppositional apologetics consistently. It's not to say that you couldn't dive in and use some of the arguments of a uh, presuppositional apologetic uh, presuppositional apologist, but you can't really be one. Okay, is is. And again, it, it, it might sound silly if you're not familiar with it, but it's true. I mean, it's the way that they really look at this. It's like you can't really consistently all the time hold to a presuppositional um, transcendental understanding without being Calvinist, even if you can jump in and actually borrow from some of the arguments from from time to time. And, you know, it's honestly for that reason that I hesitate. Now, I have a whole article on my blog about why I switched from evidential to presuppositional apologetics. And I just have to be honest. Um I hesitate to use that term anymore, presuppositional apologetics. I, it's not that I don't agree with the methodology. I do. Um, but I hesitate to use that term because it's it's been used in such a way that really bypasses, and unfortunately by some, frankly, loud voices who um, don't represent everyone who believes this way, um, that term has been sort of compromised to mean one thing when it can actually mean potentially a variety of things. So I've talked to many people who consider themselves presuppositionalists who, are, who, who don't actually take a um, you know, Calvinist theological system. And again, your hardcore presupper is going to be like, well, then you can't do that. <laughs> you know, it's inconsistent. Um, and I, you know, the question is whether or not that is actually the case. Like, it, are, are they really inconsistent? Is it possible to actually um, take this on? So what is the biblically supported method of apologetics? That's, that's sort of the question that we're getting at here. And we're not going to you know, we're not going to do this by quoting Bible verses. I, I did discuss this in a blog post. I, I discussed it in a book that I wrote, Truth Be Told. Um, my point here is not to look at like different Bible verses to talk about what way to do this. It, it's really just to make a larger point of of worldview, of worldview. Does it make sense? Is is there, did God build, this particular scenario is a good one, I think, to, to take. Did, did God build a a way of of, of functionality into the universe that tells us, that informs us about the nature of what something is, um, or is does the universe appear to be a certain way? Does reality appear to be a certain way? And then we just need God's sort of help from the scriptures to sort of tell us what those things mean. So 
it's like we discover that, oh, looks like typically a male and a female get together. They are a, a particular type of union that produce something different than any other type of union. We discover this in nature and God informs us about what that thing is. Oh, yeah, it's that. It's 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 this marriage thing. It's a, a man shall or a woman shall leave, you know, her family, a man's gonna leave his family. They're 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 they too shall be one flesh. The Bible says they're gonna come together and sort of make a covenant before me. And of course, all throughout the Bible, the marriage analogy is used. Uh, it's very similar to the the kind of covenant that God made with Israel, very similar to the kind of covenant that God makes with believers. Um, I have uh, actually a whole podcast episode and or blog post about that too, about the marriage analogy. Um, talking about that because it's a very big deal. So marriage has this higher meaning, right? It is it is rooted in something real. It is a it is a a thing unto itself that you cannot just come up with a another thing that is similar uh, to it and then borrow that same language. And this is a point, believe it or not, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Awaken with JP on YouTube. Um comedian, right? Totally funny guy. Um I don't think he's a Christian, uh, but he's a conservative. And um, very much about freedom of speech, et cetera. And uh, and believe it or not, he did a reaction take to a a particular segment of this show, of of this discussion. And he found himself agreeing with Matt quite a bit, even though he doesn't necessarily have that biblical worldview. He said, yeah, you know, it really does. It really does seem like marriage between a man and a woman is something unique. It's a union that creates something fundamentally different. And it's like, now, JP... Again, like I said, I don't think he's a Christian. Um, JP is for, for two gay people who love each other coming together in a civil union of sorts. And he even raises the question, like, maybe that's the issue. Maybe we need to call it something different. Now, of course, the spiritual, if I could just take a, like a sidebar real quick, the spiritual dynamic to this, and, and this is something that Greg Kogel has discussed on a very old episode of, of, of the SCR podcast, like 2007 or 2008, something like that. Uh, he talked about the fact that they're not going to stop there, right? It, it's not good enough, okay? It's not good enough for them to just have something called a civil union because then it's not what the other people get. The other people get something called marriage. So, so we need to borrow that terminology uh, or else it's not fair. Okay, now again, that's, this is a conversation that's been happening for a long time with regards to that specific issue. Um, but even JP was like, yeah, uh, the point I'm making is JP was like, yeah, it really does seem like Matt is making a good point. There is a difference in these things. And so I can see where, or he can see where, it muddies the water. for it, Even if it looks somewhat similar, even if you still get together before a priest, whether or not the priest has purple hair, uh, you know, it's like if you still get together before a priest in a church or, or, or before, you know, your family in a church and you have somebody who is able to officiate the wedding, um, even in that practice, you can see, but it's still a vow before God. Now, a lot of people elope and they go before a judge. Why? Because it is a type of civil union. Okay. And so when we look at the legal implications of that in the United States of America, where I live and where presumably a lot of you guys do as well, then we understand that there's this legal dynamic to it. And some people choose to not participate in the spiritual dynamic at all. The, hey, a pastor is going to marry us, a, a, you know, a person who has been um, um, dubbed to officiate a wedding in that regard uh, is going to do this versus, hey, the judge is going to do it. Now, I see no evidence of a judge 
Okay. Strictly speaking, a judge navigating the relationship between two people as a commitment, as a promise to God. And by the way, I think that's, I don't know what to do with that. Okay. I don't know what to do with that because what I'm, what I'm getting at here is I think that that removes something that removes a fundamental element of what marriage is. So is it even a marriage as God would define it? If it's two people coming together to sign a document, you see, that's to me, no, right? Because two people coming together to sign a document is not what God said marriage was. God said marriage is a man and a woman in civil union together, coming together, two flesh becomes one flesh for one lifetime, leave their father and mother, et cetera, et cetera, leave and cleave the whole deal. That's what a marriage is. And so, you know, I'm fine with taking something called a civil union and applying that to other people. Okay, fine. But that is something entirely, entirely different than what a marriage is. Now, again, we're not even talking about that, though. We're talking about should the Bible be involved in that discussion? Should the Bible be involved in that discussion? Well, here's the thing. Uh, I think the answer is it depends. <laughs> okay? It depends. And here's why I say that. Matt made a pretty good argument, uh, in my opinion, from nature. Now, the presuppositionalists, like the hardcore presupp, did not like this. They did not like this. What they wanted Matt to do was say, yeah, absolutely. The Bible teaches this, and I believe it. And since the Bible is the only worldview that seems to work and provide a rational basis for life or for anything, then we have to accept what it says about other things as well. And again, I'm really like summarizing here, uh, but that would be the, the primary argument of, of the presuppositionalist. Now, in this particular case, Matt was effective, okay? Matt was effective in what he set out to do. How do I know that? Well, because a, a guy like JP, super huge, influential guy, was like, yeah, this makes sense. Like, marriage does seem to be something fundamentally different. Now, Joe didn't get that, but JP did. And a lot of other people, I'm sure, did as well. Like, yeah, regardless of whatever other considerations, social considerations or, or love or spiritual considerations, regardless of whatever those things are, it is true that marriage is something different than a civil union or whatever it else is because there is only one kind of relationship that can accomplish this procreative act. It is certainly true, and JP made this point as well, it is certainly true that there is a kind of family, a, a, a nuclear family, a male husband, head of the household, a female wife supporter and, and, and lover of the children and cares for the children, et cetera. Like that, that family structure works. Now, is it God's family structure? Yes, it is. But it works. And it works well. And it works to benefit society. It works to grow society. And the other ones don't. And I just can't help but think that there is value to that. There is value to being able to get somebody like JP before his audience of millions of people to say, yeah, this is a different thing. Now, the Christian, of course, can take it further and explain why. It's a different thing. But if the explanation was solely because God said so, somebody like a JP is going to look at that and say, uh, well, okay. But like, does it make sense on its own merits? And then you have to answer that question downstream. Now, now hang on. If you're, if you're listening to this and you're a presuppositionalist, don't tune me out. Okay? <laughs> don't tune me out because I, I want to try to tie this together. Actually, uh, by an insight, I'm not going to be able to give you a direct quote, 
but it's an insight that I've heard directly from Scott Oliphant, who is a, a you know one of the premier defenders and and users of presuppositionalist apologetic methodology today. PhD in philosophy, student of Van Til. So even he says this. Okay, so just bear with me here. Um, I think that there's room for a layered approach here. I think there's room for a layered approach. In other words, I I think there's a way to be able to discuss the specifics of a particular view without giving up your ground, okay? Without giving up your ground, without giving up your spiritual, religious ground and, and convictions um, to help people understand that the way that God designed things is right on their own merits. It's not just because God says it's right that it's right. It's actually wrong. Um, we can apply the same sort of thing to something like murder or killing. And by the way, I'm not sure that I know a presuppositionalist in the world who would disagree with me on this point that I'm about to make. Murder is wrong in itself. Murder is wrong in itself. Now, the presuppositionalist and 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 I, like I said, I I I'm attracted to presuppositionalism, um, but I just don't like the term anymore. I, the, the the term for me is kind of broken, unfortunately. Um, I don't like the term, but I I agree with the with most of the merits. Um, murder is bad in itself. Why it's like that is most definitely because Christianity is true. It's most definitely because God exists. God created the world to be a certain way. We're created in God's image, etc. No denying that. It's 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 like that because God designed it that way, not because necessarily God said it's that way. Right? He did not take a thing and say, "Oh, this," and then that. No, he said it, of course, in his word to us. He communicated that to us, but he designed it to be that way, which is why we all have those sensibilities. Okay? Now, again, of course, I know this is the whole reason the abortion debate rages on. Okay? Of course, you're going to have some people who don't see that, or at least they have convinced themselves that that's not right. Even if they would look at a toddler and say, yeah, we should not kill that toddler when it comes to the baby inside of the body, you know, they're not making that connection. Again, that's a whole different rabbit trail that we, we could go down that we're not going to. Um, but regardless, if you've got somebody who pretty much believes that innocent human beings should not be uh, murdered, then you are going to have... And again, another thing I should point out too is that uh, the, the, the data seems to show um, that so a lot of these issues are like, you know, for, for like political commentators and like party lines and like for your hardcore people, matter, but then there's like a lot of people in the middle who are like really indifferent to it or, or, or don't think it's that big of a deal. Um, and I think a lot of that is just a lack of understanding what's actually going on. Obviously, you have the most evil corners of society showing up and you have the most, you know, uh, quote unquote, people righteous, you know, I guess you could say corners of society showing up and, and you think this huge battle is raging and a huge battle is raging, but there are a lot of people in the middle who are just totally indifferent to a lot of the stuff. And I think it's because they're not really educated. Um, on what's going on, which is why great ministries like um, like Created Equal and um, the uh, Life Training Life Training Institute. I don't know. Uh, I forget the name, but Scott Klusendorf, what those guys are doing. I mean, fantastic ministries out there that are helping to educate the normal person who has not given this thought um, around these issues. And a lot of the way they do this is by engaging with the people who have given this thought and have landed on the wrong side of things. So. What is the biblically supported method of apologetics? Well, again, it is not to give up your ground. That's for sure. So that's where I totally agree with the presuppositionalist. Okay, I, I'm not willing to have an, an argument that is frankly solely 
waged on the battleground of what is naturally accurate. Now, and this is where I disagree with Matt. By the way, I'm not saying that Matt was right in this scenario. I hope, I hope you're not coming away with that so far. I'm not saying that Matt was necessarily right. In fact, I think his approach was incomplete. It was getting there, but it was incomplete. I think Matt should have said something to the effect of, okay, well, yeah, like there is this, it does seem to be that there is this natural difference. There's this thing that we call marriage. It is something in particular. It is different than any other kind of union. It can produce something fundamentally unique. He made the point, of course, that if we were just start restarting a society and there was like no other like context that we had or whatever, like we would, we, we would look at the two people who could come together and procreate and create new life as a unique thing and call that something. And whatever else you had, it wouldn't be called that. It wouldn't be called whatever that thing was. It was marriage, okay? Um, he made that point well. Now, if I were him, I would have owned that and taken it to the next level and said, now, yes, it is true. I believe that this is the case because the world was designed this way by God. I believe that is what makes that uh, relationship not only unique, but there's a spiritual element to it. There's a dimension to it. This is why, and I could even go in now and, and talk about further things, for example, you know, sex and other things of that nature, where it's like there is there is obviously a spiritual, emotional dynamic to the reality of being a human being and that kind of connection that is beyond just, you know, you know, two blobs, uh, you know, smashing together kind of thing. Okay. There is a spiritual, relational, emotional dynamic to it. It's a connection like no other. And that's because there is a spiritual dimension to it. That's true. But even if you didn't bring that in for the sake of argument, you would definitely know and understand that it was something on its own. So do I think a person should be willing to like basically give up the Christian ground, right? Give up the ground and, and, um, and, and, and you know, give into this idea that yes, we really are neutral, that, that people can really approach an issue on neutral ground. I disagree with that. I don't think it's right. I don't, I don't think it's possible. Jesus clearly said, look, if you're not with me, you're against me. It's that simple. Okay. So I don't, I, I don't believe that there is this neutral ground that the Christian and non-Christian could walk onto and debate these little things. I think everything has to be put in the context of a worldview uh, scenario. I think worldview does matter. It does inform the way things really are. But you don't have to start every conversation at the top. And you don't have to zoom every conversation out to 30,000 feet. Some conversations need to happen at 500 feet, not at 30,000. And again, I don't have the exact words in front of me, but this is something, a point that Scott Oliphant has made in different interviews and things that he's done that I've heard him in different talks and I've heard it with people. You don't, you don't just always zoom out like some people assume you do and start questioning worldview things. You can talk intelligently about specific and individual issues, but place them faithfully in the larger and wider context of, of worldview at which time that is appropriate to do. And the reason why I just don't like the word presuppositional apologetics <laughs> is because a lot of people associate what I just described in terms of zooming right out to 30,000 feet and talking about worldview stuff with presuppositional apologetics. And that's not what I think is necessary. Now, Scott Oliphant, again, he's as hardcore as they come on this. He calls it covenantal apologetics. He'd be the first to tell you that you can only even consistently practice this method as a Calvinist. And by the way, I just totally disagree with that. Um, because I'm not a Calvinist, and yet I think it, it, it makes sense to be able to do this, and I don't think you need to have Calvinist assumptions, reformed assumptions, um, in order to make this work. So 
let's wrap this up a little bit. What I what I like to call this, or what I'm what I'm tossing out there into the wind a little bit here. Not that it needs another name, but here we go. I'm giving it another name. It's something like layered apologetics. Okay, a layered approach to apologetics, and this is what I wrote down um, to describe this. Basically, appealing to the central discussion points of, on their own merits while not giving in to the fallacy of neutrality. Let me read that again. Appealing to the central discussion points on their own merits while not giving in to the fallacy of neutrality. So in this way, you can actually say, yeah, you know what? We need to respect the biblical worldview. We need to respect and give God all glory, all praise, and all honor. We are not giving up neutral ground. I am unashamedly a Christian. I will gladly argue those points with you. And yes, I absolutely do believe that the the reason why the way the uh, the world is structured the way that it is is because of my Christian convictions. But those Christian convictions don't change the fact that reality is the way it is. We can still talk about reality on its own. We, we want to talk about why reality is the way it is, and let's zoom out and let's talk about that. And, you know, I'll tell you somebody who, even though he would use the term presuppositional apologetics, I do believe, Without any problem, I'll tell you one person who, and this one might surprise some of you, who um, who I think does this pretty well is Ken Ham. I think Ken Ham, in, in certain circumstances, does this really, really well. I remember him talking about a particular um, uh, scenario. And by the way, like I'm not talking about like debate Ken Ham. I'm the first to say that I think the Nye versus Ham debate did not go well. Okay, I don't think that was a great debate. Um, but I remember him talking about a scenario where... Um, you know, he got to speak at a college and, and a young lady came up to him and was like, I just don't understand why you hate us. <laughs> Basically, you know, she was, she was, uh, she was either gay or transgender. I can't remember. I think she was gay. Um, she's like, I, I don't understand why Christians hate us. Why, why do you think it's so bad that I just want to marry the person I love, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, Ken is the creation guy. Um, so he did, he did take it back to the beginning and say, look, it's really important that you understand that I don't hate you. In fact, um, my worldview requires that I love you. Um, and, and, but also that in that love, I, I speak the truth. And, um, he made a point to bring her back to the beginning and say, look, it's not that I, it's not that I hate you. Um, the fact is, is that I believe that God created the world and because God created the world this way for people to, um, love each other, uh, but not just love each other for, for there to be true, you know, utility in the world for, for people to get together and actually accomplish the dominion mandate where God said, be fruitful and multiply. Um, God designed marriage to be this particular uh, way. And if God designed it to be that way, then that's the way that it is. Now, again, I think there's um, some, some dimension that could have been given to that, right? Sort of this layered approach. I think, I think that you could absolutely make a two-step point where point one is, yep, the, the world is this way for a particular reason. Step two, the reason is God, right? And of course, going more into it than that. Um, I just... I guess let me just wrap this up here because I've rambled now for quite a while and hopefully this episode is uh, um, helpful for you. Just, I mean, this is a lot more of me thinking out loud and, and working through something that I needed to do for quite a while. So hopefully you uh, enjoyed it and hopefully it helped and maybe you can think about some of the same things. But look, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there are two places to have the battlefield or to, to have the any given war. There is the larger worldview consideration, what worldview actually provides the justification for a thing to be true. But then there is also the layer where the thing is true on its own merits. It's that way because God made it that way, but it's still true on its own merits. And so that is not a 
level playing field where we're necessarily all going to agree on it. I'm not calling that, whatever that is, whatever that line is, I'm not calling that neutral ground. It's not neutral ground. It is 100% true, and I think we can say it's 100% true that it is this way because God made it this way. But regardless, it is still this way, okay? Let me just leave you with this. Again, if something is the way that it is, call it marriage, call it the nature of male and female, whatever you want to do. You call it murder being wrong. If something is the way that it is, it is not that way because God said it. It is that way because God made it, okay? It's not that way because God said it's that way. It's that way because God made it that way. If we're going to say it's that way because God said it that way, then we fall victim to the youth of dilemma, which we're not going to get all into right now. But if you just think about it for a second, if something is the way that it is, it's that way because God made it like that. And so we can talk about that thing as being that way, and then we can talk about it as God having made it that way. But it's not because he said it, it's because he made it. Okay, hope that's helpful for you. God bless you guys. Thank you for joining me on this little different episode of the Bible Learner Podcast. I hope it made some sense to you. And uh, yeah, feel free to reach out. Steve at steveshram.com if you have com complaints, questions, concerns. If you've been thinking about the same thing for a while, uh, I'd love to hear from you. And I'll try to get back to you as soon as um, I can. All right. God bless you guys. Take care. See you next week. Actually, I lied. I won't see you next week. Uh, next week is Thanksgiving. Uh, here in the U.S., I probably will not publish an episode next week. I'm going to be out all week. Um, we'll not have time to get to it. So um, happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you in a couple weeks from now. God bless.